Verse number 9. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus tells us, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Heavenly Father, we pray for a moving of the Holy Spirit within us and around us today. May we understand what it is to be a child of God. We pray that you'd give each heart here a desire to be one of your children. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Theologians argue with the non-theologian evangelists whether or not prayer is a part of the uh, formula for salvation. The Bible says such things as, for by grace are you saved through faith, not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yeah. And those who study the Bible have never found a scripture which even comes close to saying, for by grace are ye saved through prayer. Not there. Those theologians remind us there's no biblical soul winner who ever tells anyone, pray these words after me and the Lord will save your soul. In other words, nowhere in the Bible do we read the prayer, Lord Jesus Come into my heart and save me. And yet, that has become a common evangelistic tool or phrase that people use in their evangelism. While these things are true, I would like to ask my theological friend, are you sure that the Lord has never saved a person who properly asked Jesus to come into his heart? Are you sure of that? Are you sure that the Lord cannot save someone who makes a request like this? Who prays like this? I wouldn't be surprised to find that there are members of our church at the time of their salvation prayed something similar to, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and save me. A few minutes ago, I shared with you the testimony of William Wilberforce, the man who led England out of the slave trade. I won't repeat that story except to say that about the time of Wilberforce's conversion, he prayed. It wasn't exactly, Lord, save me from my sin. It was, have mercy on me, Lord. 
have mercy on me. He probably drew those words out of the Lord's parable of the Pharisee and the publican there in the temple. The publican standing afar off would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but beat upon his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He prayed. And by the way, in the earlier scripture we read, the man on the cross said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Lord said to him, Let's go together. We're going to paradise. There's no expression of faith. It was a prayer, was it not? Lord, remember me? Was the man saved? According to Jesus' testimony, yes. he was. Yes. He res the Lord responded to that prayer. Yes. Again, I asked my theological friend, isn't this publican's statement a, a, a prayer? And the man has to admit, the theologian has to admit that it is. But he may reply that it doesn't exactly express faith. It doesn't express, uh, it doesn't state the man's faith in the Lord. No, it doesn't. Not in so many words. But it suggests his faith that God would be merciful to him. And the Lord was merciful what was it the Lord said about this publican and his request for mercy? Can't miss it. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than that other guy who's so filled with himself. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. When Jesus said this publican went home justified, he was saying he went home righteous. I declare him righteous. That's what the word justification refers to. And today, can't there be unexpressed faith in those words, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and save me? Can there not be faith mixed into those words? I'm not recommending that we urge people to pray like this. I probably won't tell people ever to use these words. All I'm saying is that the Lord sees hearts that yes. we don't see. Yes, and he blesses as he chooses to bless. Incidentally, Luke chapter 18 begins with the subject of prayer. As taught by the Son of God himself. He spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And then after that, we have verses 9 through 14, which are usually applied to the self-righteous Pharisee like William Wilberforce. And I will make that application somewhat today, but I'm more interested in the publican. Two men went up into the temple to pray. Those two men are introduced to us as equals. They began in precisely the same way. That's true of all men everywhere. From the man in the prison to the woman in the palace hotel. These two were human beings. They walked in off the street into the temple there in Jerusalem. 
They both heard about God. And we note that they both came in to pray. That certainly separates these two from a huge portion of people in our world today. These two came in to pray to the Lord. Still, it doesn't denote any special difference between this one man and this other man. But there were definite differences. One was a Pharisee. Now we know something that is significant. One was a Pharisee. The first man was a typical Pharisee of his day. Self-conceited, self-contented, self-satisfied, self-contained. His prayer didn't involve any requests. It didn't present any needs. He was boasting before the Lord. I do these things. I do these things. Aren't you pleased with me, Lord? He had religion. He had religion up to his gills. And he loved to pray that religion around before the eyes of other people. He prayed thus with himself. I have a hunch. I'm really not sure exactly what that means. But I imagine he was standing over there. Not right next to the publican. After all, he's a publican. I'm a Pharisee. I'm not going to stand with this guy. And the Pharisee was over here. So he prayed thus with himself. But he raised his voice loud enough to be heard in heaven and on the other side of the temple so that this publican heard exactly what the Pharisee was praying. I am not like this guy over here. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a sinner in, in any sort of way. He prayed, uh, commending himself to the Lord. His pride suggested that he didn't need mercy. No true Pharisee can be a true Christian unless he is willing to forsake his religious arrogance. His pride suggested, I don't need God's grace. I'm okay like this. And the Lord does not say that he went to his home justified. He was not a child of God. The other man, however, was a publican. He was a tax collector. Literally, the word refers to a tax farmer. The second man was a Roman house dog. He was a lackey for the foreign imperialists. He was a traitor to Israel. He collected money from the Jews to send to Rome and support their system. He had been and probably still was a civilian mercenary. Again, working for the enemy. He was held in contempt by his countrymen. And although often financially well off, the publicans were always considered to be second-class citizens. They're not really one of us, or Pharisees, or even Sadducees. And yet both of these men went into the temple to pray. The Pharisee began with one of the great elements of proper prayer, thanksgiving. Nothing wrong with thanking the Lord. 
But his thanks were presented to and about himself. (laughs) He prayed thus with himself. That was the only element of prayer that he had. He didn't present anything to the Lord. He didn't ask for anything. He didn't pray for the Lord's glory. He didn't pray for this wretched publican that he might become a child of God. There was none of that. None of that. As I read his prayer, I'm reminded of a a job that was given to me when I was working as a janitor over at the the mall in in Coeur d'Alene. One day the boss came to me. Apparently all the other jobs were taken. He said, I want you to take this... uh, squirt bottle of cleanser and go into our bathroom, the bathroom of the employees, the the janitorial staff. I want you to wash the walls. Okay. So I had this bottle of blue spray and I started at the top, which is the logical place, and I, I spread it on pretty thick. And as the blue fluid started running down the wall, it turned yellow and then brown. The employees had been going into this bathroom with this particular special vent and there they smoked. And the walls were just covered in years of accumulated cigarette smoke. As I sprayed, it turned this awful color Perhaps, perhaps no one really noticed the, uh, the wickedness of this restroom or Pharisee. But as soon as the cleanser of God got on there and started running down, we saw really who he was. Mm. This, is a, this is a wicked man who's quite proud of himself and doesn't see his own wickedness. But in opposition to that, there was the prayer of the second man, the publican. Without actually expressing it, didn't he ask the Lord for salvation? Be merciful. I'm a sinner, Lord. Be merciful to me. He was praying for the Lord's salvation. Did he have faith? I assume so. But what I hear are just words of prayer. In the second man, we have an expression of contrition. Webster defines contrition as a feeling of remorse for sin. Noah Webster wrote his dictionary or published his dictionary in 1828. He often uh, related his definitions to things that he found in the Word of God. Most people today have been dumbed down so much that Webster is no longer their dictionary. They just go to their phone and look up the Word. Besides using Bible in his definitions, he often defines words with other words that we still need to define. Things like sin. What is that? And in this case, remorse. What is that? Contrition is a feeling of remorse for sin. And again, Webster says that remorse is a deep torturing sense of guilt for one's actions, that is, sin. What is remorse? It's guilt for sin. We might apply it to other things, but uh, Webster says here's the definition. 
John Randolph was an important Virginian during and, during and after the founding of the United States. He was a strong supporter of states' rights versus the growing federalism of the first middle part of the 19th century. He was a member of, are you listening? The Democratic Republican Party. You look that up, it's, it's a real thing. I know it's confusing, but nevertheless. When Randolph lay dying, he said to his doctor, remorse, remorse. Let me see that word, show it to me in a dictionary. There wasn't a dictionary in the room. Write that word down. So the doctor wrote the word remorse on both sides of a card that he had there. Write it bigger. Underline it. Randolph stared at it for a while, stared at it some more. There was no voice in the room. It was just total silence as he looked at this card. And he said, remorse. I don't know what that word means. Don't know what it means. Then after a period of silence, he added, I cast myself upon the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy. He may not have known the definition, but he was led of the Holy Spirit to know what remorse should do. And that is what we see in the publican. He cast himself down even as he prayed for mercy. So why was this uh, tax farmer in the house of God that day? Why do people come to church? Why do they come? Why are you here this morning? Are you here to see the uh, uh, dog and pony show? Are you here to see the clowns? The singers? The pyrotechnics? Is that the right word? Some come to be a part of the show. So they dress up in their finest clothes, they put on their most expensive jewels, they, they display their talents in one way or another. Some attend church because they have to, and they hate every moment of it. But some people go into the house to pray, knowing that they have needs which only God yes. can meet. Some go into the house of God in order to learn more about the Lord. Some actually want to know what God has said in the Bible. Some of what the Bible says. They've already concluded, they haven't already concluded that they know it all. Teach me something, like Nicodemus. Some rightly go to learn more about their God-given responsibilities. And some of them, like this man, feel impelled to go to the house of God to plead for mercy from the God of sinners. I know that the Bible declares that these verses were one of the Lord's parables, says so, but I think that the omniscient Son of God based his parable on some people that he knew to be real. This actually took place. Don't the last words of the text suggest that these were real people, that this was an actual event? Christ concludes by saying, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other man. It's as though this really happened. Assuming that to be true, I think this publican 
could probably point to a third person and say, him. He might have been able to say, there is the man the Lord used to crush my heart about my wretchedness. For William Wilberforce, it was uh, Dotterich. Maybe it was John the Baptist in this man's case, who had a ministry among publicans and mercenary soldiers. Maybe it was one of the disciples of Christ who at that time were going about from city to city preaching the gospel. Maybe it was the Lord Jesus himself. Undoubtedly, it was the Holy Spirit who made the message uh, uh, bore a hole in his heart and poured that message in there. Whomever it had been, now the publican was in the house of God, driven there by the conviction of his sin. I read of another man, William Cote, who after years of faithful service to, uh, to the Lord, lay dying. And a young, brash, neophyte preacher came in to visit him, to counsel him and encourage him. And he heard the elderly man bemoaning his sin as he prayed to God. The know-it-all upbraided the old man. He didn't chew him out for his sin, but for his humility and remorse. He said, what a primitive experience for so mature and good a saint as yourself. Immediately, the old man with what little strength he had left propped himself up as best he could and looked at his friend in the face and out of his mouth flowed a little rhyme which the preacher never forgot and used for his growth. What a comfort can a Savior bring to those who never felt their woe? A sinner is a sacred thing if the Holy Ghost hath made him so. The only people God ever saves are sinners. That's right. And until we understand that we are wretches in the eyes of God, we are not fit to be saved. We cannot be saved. The publican stood in the temple filled with an almost unbearable contrition. There were no preachers there. There were no ministers there to tell him, Now, repeat after me, I am a sinner and I need to be saved. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in that man's heart condemned him and it overflowed with genuine heart tears and a prayer. Be merciful to me, Lord. I believe this is the kind of person Jehovah longs to hear. If you've never realized that you are a despicable, unworthy sinner in the sight of God, you are unfit to pray for anything. It's not that the Lord hears only sinners. It's that only those who know they're sinners who can humbly bring their heart down to where the Lord listens. Down. Those are the only people worthy of prayer. Carrying this idea of humility a step farther. Unlike this man, the Pharisee trusted in himself that he was righteous and despised others. 
That's not our conclusion as we read the parable. That's what Jesus said about this man. The man's self-righteousness closed the doorway to God and it was locked with a deadbolt of pride. But the publican would not so much as lift his eyes off the floor between his feet. This is good, and the Lord commended it. But here's something you need to notice. The man's contrition and remorse were not in themselves an elevator into God's throne room. It's not enough. There's no premium in great sin. The Lord loves to save these really, really bad people and, and not so much the not so bad people. There's nothing like that. That's right. Just to recognize our sin does not make us friends of God. The publican's contrition gave him no more right to God's mercy than the Pharisee's pride. Do I need to say that again? The publican's contrition gave him no more right to God's mercy than the Pharisee's pride. But the man's sin honestly humbled him before the Lord and his contrition put him in a position before God to receive the Lord's grace. If the Lord sovereignly chose to bless the man, and in this case he did. Christian... The fact is, your condition has not changed since Christ saved your soul. You are still, in the flesh, a sinner. And that sin demands your constant humility before Christ. God owes you nothing. Not because of sin. Not because of repentance. Not because of grace. God owes you nothing, ever. And that any of us can ever, all that any of us can ever do, really, is plead for mercy. Even when we're asking for the health of our our spouse. Be merciful, Lord. Be merciful. God is not required to be merciful to any of us, ever. The publican's humility then evidenced itself in his expression of helplessness. It was a daring thing for this man to walk into the temple in Jerusalem. Just as it is for us to come into God's holy, heavenly temple. (coughs) Seeing a known publican, an overzealous temple guard might have taken a stick to him, battered him, drove him away. We will not allow any publicans in the Lord's house. But even worse, what did the Lord think about this sinner? He came in with his eyes down, stood in a corner with his eyes down. If there were wanted posters scattered around the countryside with your picture on it. They don't do this much anymore, but I have seen them in post offices. 
If those posters declared you, declared you to be a dangerous criminal, and the part at the bottom that said dead or alive, someone had scratched out the alive part, <laughs> and you walked into a police station with a revolver in your hand, how comfortable would you feel? Here was a man convicted and convinced of his sin, and now he approached the Lord. He didn't bring any of the prescribed offerings with him. It doesn't say that he stopped even at the, uh, uh, the, the collection box out there. He just walked in. He was empty-handed, and his heart was as black as coal, filled with sin as red as crimson. What do I see here? This man felt helpless and hopeless, so he cast himself down at the foot of God, totally empty, no strength. He didn't try to offer the Lord a long history of good works. He knew there weren't very many. He didn't have with him a financial report of his tithes and offerings. He didn't have any newspaper clippings saying, I've done these things and, and people have recognized me. He wasn't in any sort of uh, who's who that he was trying to present before the Lord. The man made no attempts even to promise good things in the future. Lord, if you save me, I will do this and this and this. It was just be merciful. Sinners who come to the Lord properly come to Him as helpless sinners, surrendered to Him. It's not even suitable for them. They're not where they ought to be. They are, but they aren't. They don't deserve to be here. Certainly God is not unaware of our depravity and our sinfulness. Our eyes shouldn't be focused on ourselves at all. Our eyes should be focused on the Savior. Yes. God, be merciful to me. Nothing in my hands I bring. Lord, simply to thy cross I cling. Fourth dimension of this man's prayer is seen in its earnestness. He didn't waste any time in preliminary details. He didn't even offer any words of thanksgiving. He was a drowning man in, in 30-foot seas. And all he could do was cry for help. One old Bible commentator called his earnest prayer a holy telegram. It used to be in sending telegrams you paid by the word or the letter. So you kept it as short as possible. Perhaps today someone might call it a holy tweet specifically <laughs> sent to God. The publican beat upon his chest, perhaps saying, this is where the problem is. This is where the problem is. He beat upon his heart as if he was in spiritual cardiac arrest. I need to get this thing going. Lord, be merciful. He beat upon his chest as if he was in mourning or he was crying. He was visiting the great physician and he didn't bother to say, my hands are in good shape and my feet are pointed in the right direction. He didn't deal with his health. He dealt with his sickness. 
He was showing God the wounds and pleading for some healing. God, be merciful to me, a wretched sinner. One more very important point. Note the man's faith. Wait a minute, preacher. You, you said there wasn't any faith expressed here. Yes, I did say that. There's no mention of faith. It may not be mentioned, but I believe it's implied. I believe it's there. I don't know where or how this publican picked up this biblical principle, but he, he did get it somewhere. And as I've already tried to point out, despite the ancient Jewish law, there's no mention of bringing an offering. There was no lamb or bullock, no burnt offering, no sin offering. And yet when he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner, he was pointing to the mercy seat in the Old Testament. He was pointing to the brazen altar where the sacrifice was laid. The word which is translated mercy here is used only one other time in the Bible, and that's in Hebrews 2.17, where it's translated to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Jesus died to make reconciliation. Mercy. Yes. To provide mercy. This man was pleading for and trusting God to let him return to the Lord. May we be reconciled. Based upon your grace, may I be reconciled to you. Remember, some people think they have, all they have to do is utter a few magic words and God is obligated to forgive them. But scripturally, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That's right. Without remission, there's no reconciliation. None. This man was pleading, by faith, the blood of the last and greatest of God's sacrifices. I know the words aren't there, but I think the intent was. He was beseeching God for true deliverance, redemption from sin. He didn't want simply some ointment to take away the pain that his sins were causing himself and others. He wanted the root of the problem corrected. Be merciful to me, Lord. The man knew that he needed complete and thorough reconciliation with God. The sinner was reaching for this merciful reconciliation with the only thing that he had, faith. He had a simple trust that God, who promised mercy and salvation, would give it to him. The Lord made that promise based upon what the Lord himself had provided in the Lamb, which takes away the sin of the world. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The publican came to God with absolutely nothing except faith in the Lord's promise to forgive. And he expressed it as 
be merciful, Lord. God had supplied the sacrifice. God had supplied the blood. The publican only supplied an unworthy subject to save. Be merciful, Lord. This is the way to salvation from sin. No matter what your sin problem might be, you are a publican in the sight of God. Whether the rest of the world sees you as a publican doesn't really matter. Have you ever besought the Lord? Have you ever pled with the Lord in the same sort of way? Save me, Lord. Yes. I trust your sacrifice. Have you ever prayed in faith for salvation? Oh God, give me the faith to trust the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is salvation and nothing else. No one else. What is keeping you from that prayer this morning? Is it your pride? Like this other man? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. The Lord remembers. Amen. He is a wonderful Savior. Amen. Please stand.